time goes by, I continue to do my work. I figure out systems and process and, you know, just kind of go about my business. And then all of a sudden, this movement starts called sales enablement. And I see some of the same things happening. There are a lot of people who are good people with great intentions, but they're doing random acts of enablement. And very often, frankly, they're limited sometimes by the leadership in their organization who don't really understand how do you drive organizational performance. So having some of the same struggles as the early training in organizational performance practitioners were. I see all of those things now starting to emerge again out of the primordial ooze of sales enablement. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Mike Kunkel. Mike is the Vice President of Sales Effectiveness Services for Sparks IQ and author of the new book titled The Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. In his book, Mike spells out a comprehensive framework for sales enablement as a strategic element of any organization's sales success. So we talk about the type of support that sales enablement needs from the C-level to effectively do its job. We also get into the skills that someone needs to develop in order to be effective in a sales enablement role. What's the career path like? What do you need to learn? Then Mike and I dig into some of the 12 building blocks of success for sales enablement that he lays out in his new book, including buyer acumen, buyer engagement content, sales hiring, sales training, and sales coaching. So it's a fascinating discussion. We get into all of this and much, much more. However, before we get to Mike, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, Andy. I am glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been a while since we actually spoke, as opposed to just exchanging messages uh, on LinkedIn. So, um, so what's new with you? Well, where to start? Uh, we have, uh, at Sparks IQ, launched Modern Sales Foundations, Sales Coaching Excellence, both of which are my content, although I co-authored Modern Sales Foundations with Doug Wyatt. Mm -hmm. uh, recent, personally, just moved to New Hampshire, up from Massachusetts. So we are in a rural community for the first time in my life. I've got uh, well water and a septic tank. And, oh, wow. Uh, and apparently a backyard that's going to be visited at some point by black bears and deer. Oh, and, really? Yeah, so we're, we're sort of excited about uh, all of that. And man, I tell you, Andy, you could hear a pin drop here sometimes it is so quiet so it's a it's a really great place we feel very <laughs> grateful coming off of thanksgiving right and uh looking forward to living here in new hampshire now yeah i think that'd be too quiet for me as somebody who <laughs> I, I share time between manhattan and san diego and both mm -hmm. big cities i live in the heart of manhattan and the heart of, of downtown san diego uh on a busy street it's like uh yeah, I don't know what I'd do with peace and quiet. I mean, my wife and I, a couple of years ago, went upstate New York and stayed at this lodge uh, out in the middle of nowhere and uh, up in the Adirondacks. And uh, I was like, yeah, is it too quiet at night? <laughs> the, the, the silence, this is clearly, the silence was deafening. That's for us. It was like, oh my gosh, we're so accustomed to going to sleep to, you know, the, the rhythm of the city. It's like when nothing's going on, it was a little... A little intimidating. Yeah, it can be un can be unnerving. And then when it's typically that quiet, it's like you hear every noise. So it's oh, like, yeah. wait, what was that? The bear. No, it's pretty funny. A <laughs> bear. Yeah. Well, we're uh, we're 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 hoping for those, but we're not trying to attract them either. But it'd be cool to see a black bear from a distance. Let's say. Yeah. I mean, do you have like dogs or anything? Uh, three, three, and my okay. my dachshund is. You know, thinks he's a black bear, so you know we uh, we have to keep him leased in the backyard just in case. He's bait, I think, is what the bear yeah. thinks. <laughs> well, it's fine. I just saw this video, you know, social media somewhere about a you know black bear that was on a fence between two properties and and was sort of a person's dog was barking at it and too close, and some woman ran into the frame and pushed the bear off the fence. I mean, it's like, wow, don't do that. 
<laughs> no, I won't. Uh, I won't plan to do that. Although my favorite bear video, I have to say, is the one where the bear is walking down the road and there is a tipped over orange traffic cone and the bear stops, stands it up and goes on his way. It's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. I'll have to try to check that out. Um, all right. Well, you've one of your new things is you've written a new book, The Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. Um, I have I have done that, yes. Yeah. So what was the what was the impetus to write the book and why now? Well, it's a good question, especially with all of the new terms and names being thrown about. And I really had to think about do I want to publish something right now with the term sales enablement with revenue enablement and commercial excellence and and all of that but Andy as you know the stuff that I do and that you know we talk about um, this stuff has been around since the dawn of time right it's repackaged it's a little different right. Right. I love the I love the cross-functional collaboration aspect of sales enablement but the the work that sales enablers are doing today, I actually started probably in 1994 and accelerated a bit around 2003, mm. but I was working cross-functionally between, you know, marketing departments and product development and, you know, obviously the, you know, the sales team and sales operations and just trying to find all the performance levers and ways that we could help our sales force be more effective. Mm -hmm. And so then I saw this interesting thing happen. I started out in training or sales training. Right. And then this term came along, performance consulting. And then I tapped into something that they were calling human performance technology or HPT. Now, basically, these are sort of flavors of organization development and organization design mm -hmm. and behavioral performance. And you, know, you can get degrees in a lot of these things, right? right? But if you talk to most sales professionals, most of them aren't really tuned in to OOE or HPT or OD or change management or those things. So these things have been around in the periphery. And all of a sudden, in the training field, performance consulting happened. And I thought, holy cow, this is phenomenal. We are now going to take a performance orientation to training. This is exciting. And I attended some of the first workshops that were delivered mm -hmm. in this, and I read all the books, and I got all excited. And then, you know, here we are, I don't know what, 20 years later? And performance consulting really never took a complete foothold in training and development. So time goes by, I continue to do my work, I figure out systems and process and, you know, just kind of go about my business. And then all of a sudden, this movement starts called sales enablement. And I see some of the same things happening. There are a lot of people who are good people with great intentions, but they're doing random acts of enablement. And very often, frankly, they're limited sometimes by the leadership in their organization who don't really understand how right. do you drive organizational performance. So having some of the same struggles as the early training in organizational performance practitioners were. And I see performance consulting in all of its diagnose first, then prescribe, and let's figure out all of the elements that will help us move the needle and get those in alignment. Let's apply systems thinking. I see all of those things now starting to emerge again out of, you know, the primordial ooze of sales <laughs> enablement, right? <laughs> and, you know, no matter, and, well, and then, of course, we hit 10,000 people on LinkedIn with titles of sales enablement. And then what do we do? We decide we want to call it something else. So yeah. now we have revenue enablement and commercial enablement. And, you know, we're trying to, to sort of find our way. I don't care whether we call it sales enablement or FRED. I think it's the work that we do. It's the figuring out what does it mean in this organization and what is a framework and systems and process and methodology? What can I do and how can I work cross-functionally to help our sales force perform at their highest levels? And to do right. that for me, that requires truly understanding the buyers and the market and the personas, right? And it's the old Zig Ziglar adage, you get what you want in life by helping enough other people get what they get what what they want, right? I have and I, 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 I know, right? And so, 
that is for me the foundation of it all. And well, I think of sales enablement as enabling the buying process in helping the reps understand how do they work with the buyers to help them make the best decisions. And if they do that well, if they take that other centric perspective, they get what they want, right? I'm sorry, okay. I cut you off there. Well, no, 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 that's that's fine. No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to intrude while you're talking. Is is because you're right in the book that there's still not a single definition of sales enablement. Right. And I think you just sort of gave yours, but if you did, give it again. Yeah, I, I think it is whatever you need to do to prepare and enable the sales force to go to market as effectively as possible, to find buyers who have problems they can solve, who want to solve them and help them solve those problems. And so for me, it's really... Um, it's, it's not buyer enablement. I hear that term tossed about, but we're not enabling the buyers, right? But it is, to me, buying enablement. It's helping enable the buying process, helping buyers make the best decisions possible, and then figuring out how do I find people who have these problems that we can solve rather than trying to blast out to the entire world like you and I both probably get on LinkedIn, right? I get, you know, prospecting approaches on a minute-by-minute -minute basis trying to sell me things I don't ever buy, right? So figuring out who is that market, how do right. I go to market effectively to serve them, help them solve problems, and win in the process. To me, that's what it should be about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. I agree. I, mean, I think that I like the focus that you have in the book on you know, buying enablement, being other centered, uh, which I think is, is still missing predominantly in most sellers, <laughs> but is certainly the perspective that we need to inculcate in sellers is that, yeah, it starts with the buyers. Yeah. And, and so, well, you, you lay out in the book, you lay out this the framework, I'll call it, but a, a systems approach to, to sales enablement. You have 12 building blocks of those. And I'm going to dig into a little deeper. I went a little bit later, but just wanted to sort of ask you, are they laid out in any sort of priority? So you've got, well, a, you've got this structure, this grid. Um, yeah. If I were to yes start in the no. top left-hand corner of the grid, it's like, uh, you know, buyer acumen. So and it ends sort of in the other opposite end of the grid and sales manager enablement. So is that implied priority? Yes and no. The one I would say that is an implied priority is if, if you don't start with buyer enablement, there are so many downstream things that you will miss or that won't be optimized that you really miss the, the full opportunity for effectiveness. So I think you have to start with buyer acumen, truly understanding your buyers. What are their challenges? What are op the opportunities they typically can, they face it could enable and capitalize on? What are the impacts of not doing either of those things? What needs does that create for them? What outcomes are they looking for? And how would they prioritize those needs and outcomes? What's the buying journey they typically go through? Who do they typically take on that journey with them? What kind of budgets do they manage? Uh, if you truly understand your market and your buyers, then all of the downstream things that you can do, serve them, include that, and get mm -hmm. more effective. So I do think if that's not in place or in place well enough, I think that is the starting point. The rest of them, I would say I'm really more of a fan of gap analysis. Mm -hmm. right? what, what's the current state that you're in today right. in terms of enabling your sales force? You know, how would you rank yourself in each of these areas on a scale of one to 10, let's say, a Likert scale of one to 10, one to five, whatever you want to use. What's the desired future state? By the way, this probably sounds a lot like discovery, right? What's, yeah. what's yeah. the desired yeah. future, future state? state? And what are the challenges, right? What, yeah, what are the challenges? What's right. the gap between those two? And as best you can estimate, what's the, the impact analysis of, of moving to the desired future state block by block? 
And then you can start to prioritize, well, we're okay with sales training today, but the problem is we're not coaching to follow up to it. So we have a bigger gap in coaching. All right, we're hiring, you know, okay, but we're not going to be adding people much in 2022 other than some replacements. So, you know, we want to get that right, of course, but that doesn't need to be a top priority. We're not onboarding 15 people a month, Mm -hmm. right? You know, we have a process in place, but man, our methodology is all over the board. So if we want to speak a common language and start to go to market the same way, you know, maybe, you know, methodology is a little higher in the priority list. And all of that really should be tying back to what are the strategic objectives for the sales organization for the year? And, you know, what is what are the senior leaders want to accomplish? And then in addition to figuring out what you've got and what you don't and where the gaps are, you can start to prioritize based on which ones are going to best help the organization move forward toward the desired future state the metrics that matter most mm-hmm. and those strategic objectives that senior leadership is set. That's when you start to earn that seat at the table, I think, and you know, become one of the players that's helping move the organization forward. And in terms of sales enablement, having a seat at the table. Yeah. Right. So, yes. But let's let's talk about that because what you lay out is so you got these 12 building blocks, and I'll just go through them quickly. It's buyer acumen, buyer engagement content, sales support content sales hiring, sales training, sales coaching, sales process, sales methodology, which you referred to, sales analytics and metrics, sales technology and tools, sales compensation and recognition, sales manager enablement. Number, that's number 12. So we'll come back and touch on some of these later. But, but you know, this is this comprehensive framework or systems approach, as, as you talk about in the book. I mean, it it speaks to, gosh, I mean, this really requires sort of a commitment to sales enablement as a strategic function within an organization at a, a senior level to really pull this off. But to the point you were just sort of making, it seems like we're not seeing that happen enough yet. I think that's absolutely true. I think there are maturity models that get talked about relative to sales enablement. You know, of course, you know, first there's none, which my boss uh, calls uh, leave them alone and let them sell. Right. Right. Uh, right? Which, you know, gets, gets, is a certain degree of effectiveness. There are organizations who, who do that. And to some degree on a bell curve, they're getting results or the company wouldn't be, you know, open and and doing business. right? Right. But you can then, then you, start to move toward, you know, well, you have random acts of enablement. And then you you start to get a little bit more formalized, but it's kind of an informal process. Then you get to formal enablement, which for me is the building blocks. And by the way, while they're different shapes, the other two things, the systems thinking and the communication block, right. uh, the communication being communication to the sales team, doing it effectively, doing it on a cadence, having things be in a place where people can find it, having it be in a format they can absorb easily, and the cross-functional communication and collaboration across functions. Those two things sort of surround those 12 building blocks and tie it all together. Then in organizations that have the resources and budget and, and, and team, they can also explore sales support services, sort of, sort of like an SLA mm-hmm. environment where the sales force might request help with RFPs or there might be a deal desk or there might be coaching services. Not everyone does that, but I've seen that happen in some more sophisticated organizations. So, and are those typically the, the under the purview of sales enablement or should be? Uh, I think that uh, sales enablement can be the sort of the point or the coordinator of that. But even if you look at some of these other blocks, Andy, I mean, sales methodology, sales process, sales analytics and metrics, very often you think of that sales compensation and recognition, you think of those being sales ops or rev ops, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if you if you explore in ten different organizations, you're going to get you know seven different organization structures. Some of which have sales training, sales enablement, and sales operations. Some of which have one of those that does some blend of the three. So there is no common organizational structure out there. So to me, these are the blocks and the things that you have to get in alignment to be as effective as possible. I don't care whether sales enablement, rev ops, sales training, or Mickey Mouse does these things. 
They just need to be done. They need to be done well. And someone needs to coordinate across the, the various functions with this cross-functional collaboration. I think when sales enablement exists in an organization and can take that role, that's great. If a sales leader wants someone else taking that cross-functional collaboration role, that's great. But someone needs to do it, and I see that being missing in a lot of organizations today, and therefore they don't fire well on all these blocks or some people are rowing in one direction and other people in the same boat are rowing in a different direction, and it's not a great way for maximum velocity, right? Right. Well, I think that was the revelation for me reading your book is that this idea that, at least mentally for me, is repositioning sales enablement to be this function to manage and be responsible for the cross-functional coordination, right? Is, is mm-hmm. Right now, you ask you know, 100 people on the street, sales enablement, ah, training, <laughs> right? I mean, it's <laughs> like, they go right there. It's like, and I sometimes feel like enable. People in enablement allow themselves to get sort of pigeonholed that way, but what you've painted, you've painted this this broader picture, which is so crucial, and sort of mirrors sort of the you know the broader perspective we're taking on go to market, for instance, right? That yeah. that you know there's there's all these pieces that are coming to play. Who's responsible to make sure that they're coordinated, and that the sales force is getting what they need. Mm-hmm. Because right today we know based on a bunch of different studies and surveys somewhere you know between 59 and 66% of marketing content doesn't get used by the sales force. Right. And that's kind of like one of these dog head tilt moments. It's like what? <laughs> Why well, you know how could that possibly be? Well, right. maybe it didn't start with buyer acumen. Maybe we're not thinking about exit criteria and what the various personas need in each stage to feel comfortable moving forward to the next stage. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have a content plan that is really synced up and so Sales enablement doesn't have to own these things. They're not going to own no. building some of this stuff, but somebody has to own that the sales force is getting what they need to go to market effectively. And when sales enablement exists, I think that's a, a perfect uh, function in the organization to do that. But again, doesn't matter to me who does it as long as it gets done, because that's how you get organizations to be more effective. Well, I, I, yes, I understand your point about you don't really care who does it, but it's at the same time, I think that the value of the book is you're creating this framework to say, okay, at least in my mind, this is the most clear description for me that I've ever seen of sales enablement, right? And what sales enablement should be is, and so to, you know, we talked about the first building block, buyer acumen. I mean, so many of the things you described, you, yeah, I was reading the book thinking, well, that's okay. Yeah, those things all need to exist. Marketing probably are the ones who are responsible typically for coming up with you know a lion's share mm-hmm. of that, but sales enablement is the one that's saying, "Look, we need to have this. It needs to be these things so that we can help support sellers." Yeah, your sales enablement is not doing it, but making sure that it's taking place. And I, it's interesting. I was talking about buyer acumen to someone recently, and they said to me, "Well, you know, salespeople always seem to be bored by." you know, buyer personas and getting all that, you know, kind of information. And then, you know, in addition to making me want to do an eye roll, um, (laughs) I said, you know, it's not that you just do that work and hand it over to the sales force. That work informs the other work that you do. It informs the content plan. It informs the messaging. It informs your playbook. It's not that the sales force that you have to say, oh, we did all this cool well, buyer acumen research and here you go. You know, and, and I, I know that even some of my friends do this uh, work where they actually name the personas. So Fred right. is the CMO right. and Agawar is the right. CFO. And right. I, you know, Jesus, I don't care about any of that, right? Let's <laughs> get this profile built so that we can start doing the downstream work of understanding the buyer's journey, the things that matter to them, who they work with. And especially for me, the geeky thing that I guess in in the book is a buying process exit criteria. And I stole exit criteria from my Six Sigma background, yeah. but it, it it's in software development. It, it really just means in a process stage, which has generally a stage name, uh, an objective for the stage, 
tasks that need to be performed in that stage, and then exit criteria. An exit criteria simply is what needs to be completed before you can move forward, like the mm -hmm. critical path of a project. Well, in buying process, buying process exit criteria is whatever that each decision maker, each persona in this deal needs to see, hear, feel, understand, or believe in that stage to feel comfortable moving forward to the next stage with mm -hmm. you. And across the series of buyers and decision makers and influencers, sometimes those exit criteria might be exactly the same thing in stage one. But in stage two, they might diverge. And, mm -hmm. and if there's six different decision makers, they might have six different exit criteria in that sure. stage. Well, if you don't understand that, whether you're doing marketing to figure out what's the content that I need to create to help them make decisions to move forward with us in each stage, or whether you're a rep who's trying to dig in and understand what are each of their differing exit criteria, what do I need to meet to meet them or satisfy them, and then how do I check to make sure that I've done that so I know I'm maximizing my ability to move this deal forward. That understanding of that concept inform so many different things in the organization to be as effective as possible. And Andy, I, you know, I just don't hear enough people talking about it at that granular level or how it actually reaches across these functions to inform the work that right. we do to help our sales force be more effective. And I think that's something that we need to spend a lot more time on as sales leaders, as sales enablement pros, sales ops, marketing ops, product marketing. We should all be aligned around these things. Right. Well, I mean, so the, the first big obstacle to, to that, because I agree 100% with you, is, and I think your book is a great start in sort of changing some of the discussion, is about <laughs> buying stage exit criteria as opposed to sales stage exit criteria. Because, right. because, you know, I think that we do an incredible disservice to, to sellers when we look at everything from the lens of purely the selling process as opposed to the buying process. Because we should denominate everything in terms of, you know, you have a five-stage buying process laid out in the book. Is, you know, if you're going through an opportunity and from a sales perspective, you should be looking at it purely from the buying perspective, what stage they're in. I mean, right. you know, discovery means nothing to a buyer, right? I mean, it's like our, our version of seller's discovery. And plus, it doesn't happen just in one stage. It happens in multiple stages. So, that's right. So I think, that, I think that's one of the great things I liked in the book was this idea. Is let's say, hey, let's look at it from here, from this perspective of the buyer. And these exit criteria absolutely are, are critical because if you've been working on a deal and it suddenly stalls out, you might think, oh, well, what's going on here? Well, chances are there's a question. You know, it's one of the exit criteria, a question that hasn't been answered. That's right. And we, you know what's fascinating about that, Andy, is you think about the customer life cycle and this, this whole concept. You might have five buyers who you've met their exit criteria in one stage and, and mentally they've moved forward and all of a sudden the rep is moving forward with them. But two other key decision makers haven't. Are, ha haven't. They're, exactly. they're, stuck, they're stuck at the back. And now, because you're not addressing their criteria and moving forward, now you're ruffling those feathers. Now you're probably creating what we call in buyer landscape a detractor rather than an advocate, mm -hmm. someone who is going to maybe move toward preferring a different solution or DIY or no solution. And all of a sudden, you've created all this friction in the process because you're doing the same thing the same way every time, sort of like Einstein's definition of right. insanity, right? right? And that's, uh, it's, that's, to me, what makes the complex sale complex, but it's also the solution to navigating a complex sale. And look, I didn't make this stuff up. I, I learned this stuff from observing top performers in mm -hmm. multiple companies over many years. This is the stuff that they do that... They couldn't say the word, they couldn't say to you, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm capturing the Rexic criteria, right? No, they, uh, they, I, know, they, did. I, wouldn't, I didn't look at it that way. I mean, what I, no. what, what I knew was, was, you know, to this point, is I remember reading early in my sales career, I read this, this research paper about how change management and how people adopt mm -hmm. change. And the thing that stuck with me was that, you know, 
people they find stages and people won't move from one stage to the next until their questions are answered yep. that they have in that stage. And so for me, that was like an early light bulb. Even this was like, you know, three or four years into my career. It's like, Oh, so that's what's happening. This is, this is why these deals aren't moving forward. Uh, I get it. And when you have that framework to look at it, it makes all the difference. Well, it, one of the reasons that I think we became friends early was that as, as I read your content and I followed your work, you were one of those top 4% producers and you were one of the people that I studied in top performer analysis to try to figure out what, what are the elite doing that the rest aren't and what's replicable Mm-hmm. from from that. Now, not everything is, right? You you look at the top 4% producers and you know this. Sometimes they're doing stuff you just can't replicate across an organization. Right. It's right? personal. But right. they, are, they are doing some things. And, some, and I've been talking more lately about the concept of progressive stages of, of activity where if, if you're performing at this level here today, a little bit lower level, there may be certain things that you need to do at that level. If you want to take it up a notch, Mm -hmm. there are things that you need to continue. There are some things you'll need to start doing differently. And there are other things you need to stop doing. Hmm. And then at that level, right, you'll you'll probably have to do another continue stop start to get to the next level above that. And so I I put a post out on LinkedIn this week thinking about that, uh, referencing Marshall Goldsmith's book, which I love, called um, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. (laughs) Great book, yep. Yep. Yeah. Right. And so it's that same concept. And we don't, I don't think we think nearly enough about that because we'll just take the best practices and we'll cram them into an onboarding program rather than figuring out what does this new person need to do to get running, to get up and running as quickly as possible, as effectively as possible. Okay. Now we got them there. What do they need to start doing differently to get to the next tier? And what do they need to start doing differently to get to the next tier? And we don't think about human performance that way in organizations, but that's what it really requires if you want to orchestrate it. Well, and I think you identify such a critical point, and not to digress too much, but is that we don't we don't challenge sort of these these closely held beliefs frequently enough, right? I mean, mm-hmm. things things change. I mean, one one example I love to give is. You know, it's sort of established, if you ask most sellers you know, the, about this whole concept of loss aversion as a motivator and ways decisions are made. And it's been sort of accepted, you know, a canon, if you will, you know, within behavioral science and so on. But then just in the last couple of years, there have been papers coming out saying, yeah, actually loss aversion is not a thing. <laughs> it's like, and it's based on new research and new science. And it's like, okay, well... We need to update what we think then. If that's if that's not longer the case, no longer the case, what's that mean for us, right? right. That's one example. There's all sorts of things. I mean, there's been work in new brand science with you know EQ. It's different than what we think. It's so important, but the way we think about it, how it happens, is not the way it actually happens. So, how do we how? Yeah, you just triggered the saw. It's like yeah, we just we, there's so many things that we sort of ingrained beliefs. We just need to update our thinking. You know, this progressive change that you talk about. There's a concept uh, called unlearning, right? Yeah. And I think that, I think unlearning and relearning and staying abreast of these things. And, you know, if we're still trying to do things based on beliefs that we held or things we understood in 1984, um, you know, we're going to be obsolete b- before too long. In fact, I, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about, uh, the need to master selling digitally and virtually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that need has been around for a long time. And someone else was talking about... Um, 1880s, I think. But yeah. Right. <laughs> someone else was talking about changing buyer, changing buyer behavior and how that's evolving. And, you know, when I was at Richardson, we were talking about changing buyer behavior in 2013. The thing that happened is we had an external event with a pandemic that suddenly forced us into doing things radically differently than we were. Mm-hmm. And now that's accelerated and probably not going back anytime soon to the way things were. Whatever the new normal uh, is, it's going, to, it's going to include some different version of digital selling and et cetera. Right. And now, now buying behavior is 
is still evolving, but, you know, buyers wanted to research on their own previously. Buyers like to ask each other for their opinions previously. Yes. Now oh, it's yeah. accelerated, right, based on this external event that we all went through together, but the need was always there. So I'm actually a little hopeful, Andy, right? Because I've been saying for a long time, watching us evolve from the way that we have been selling to the way that we need to be selling was a little like watching a glacier crawl. <laughs> and, and now I'm actually hopeful that we might be at a tipping point yeah. where organizations have to start preparing their sales forces to go to market differently. So I'm, I think something good might really come out of all this craziness we've been through. Yeah, I think, I think possibly so. I think, but I think that you bring up an interesting point that I wanted to delve into for a second is that, yeah, buying, buying behaviors are changing. But what many people read into that is that the way people process information to make decisions has changed as well. And I don't believe that's the case. I think that's more, no. you know, elemental human evolution that, you know, give us 10,000 years and this is going to happen. But to your point is everything that precedes that, everything that feeds into this human function about how people make decisions is changing. But well, but I think in your buy, what you laid out like in the buying process, or your five-stage buying process, that's 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 not going to change, right? And people still yeah. have to understand what their problem is. They still need to define what the outcomes they can achieve. They need to evaluate the alternatives. How they do that may differ. You know the mechanics, but they still mentally have to go through this. They have to formulate options, choose an option, then choose a vendor. Yeah, my uh, one of my one of my favorite sayings, Andy, is that the human brain evolves very slowly. The way that we decide, the psychology of things, you know, ethos, pathos, logos from Aristotle. Mm, what was right. that? Five thousand years ago, well, we quite, we just yeah. <laughs> we we just wrote Aristotle into a course called Modern Sales Foundations <laughs> because, because it it works. The concept yeah. of how do you establish credibility? How do you make an emotional appeal? How do you justify that with logic? It's the way that people think and make decisions. Right, and we make and, and we all make decisions a lot more emotionally than we'd like to think with our or rational brains. And so if you're not addressing all of those, you're missing some of the pie. But, right. you know, that stuff's from Aristotle. I don't think the human brain has evolved nearly as much as all the stuff around us. So now buyers still making decisions with their old, you know, Neanderthal brains now do expect salespeople to come to the table knowing something more about their company rather yep. than saying, hey, I'd like to meet with you and learn about what you do. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's time we retired that well, one. Well, that's what I was saying. It's the, the behaviors that surround the human brain part are changing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, and you need to adapt to it. But sellers, there's too many sellers to think that means that what's happening in the human brain has also changed in the last 20 years, yeah. and it hasn't. So no, completely agree with that. And we, I, I think, I think we need to talk more about this, not right here this moment, but I'm saying this is something we need, that people need to understand better. Is it sure there are things that have changed? You know, um, what is the Gartner research? They said that 60% of millennial buyers tried to avoid a sales rep, but would prefer to go through a buying process without talking to a, a sales rep. Right. Well, that's based on, the way that we have been selling, not based on the ideal or what the far right of the bell curve or the top four percenters have been doing, because buyers have always wanted to work with them because they're trusted advisors yep. who help yep. them make great decisions, exactly. who bring insights and experience to the table. Exactly. So if we base it on average, yeah, you're right. They don't want to work with sellers and they'll try to avoid us. Although it's interesting that on the other side of that, 20% of those buyers have have buyer's remorse because they made a bad purchase decision without, without input, right? without <laughs> talking to somebody from sales. So it's, but, I, but I read that study, Mike, and I, I started laughing because I said, actually, I want to modify that finding. The finding is 100% of buyers through the course of human history have never wanted to talk to a seller <laughs> if they could do it on their own. And, you know, it's, it's not like millennials are different in that regard. It's like if you bring nothing to the table to a buyer, then of course they'd prefer to do it without you. 
Yep. To your point, you know, if, if, if you're valueless in the interactions you're providing, if you're just, you know, pushy, persuasive, salesy seller, they've got no time for you. But that's always been the case in my, in my experience is, is so it's. Yeah. Same, same, same here. Right. And I think of, I think of people like, uh, like you, like Brock, like Ian Arino, like Charlie Green with the trust work. I Mac Hannon and consultative selling. By the way, what is that? Fifty-one years ago, mm-hmm. that, Mac, that Mac published his first version of that. Yeah, um, you know uh, the 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 thought leaders, the people who have been those top one to four percenters, have always operated that way. Um, again, where I'm hopeful is I think we might be approaching a tipping point where people who don't operate that way are going to be relegated to sit in the background mm-hmm. and answer a phone call when it comes in. All right? those, of, those of us who can operate in this new way are, are going to be the consultative sellers of the future. Right. No, I, I agree 100%. I mean, it, it's, I just always sort of, I don't know somewhat bemused by some of these, you know, studies that come out that, you know, paint things as being so different. And it's like, it's not really that different uh, than the way people have been thinking for a long time. Like this thing about the buyers or yeah. to your point mm-hmm. earlier about virtual selling. So I like to joke, you know, the virtual selling started when the telephone was invented. Um, and I spent most of my career virtual selling. I have, I have, uh, I, I do think there's some things um, that you can do backstage as a Lego calls it, right? You have right. to understand you yeah, look at the webcam to make great, eye contact. Great, great book, by the way. Right. Yeah. yeah I like I love their that book, yeah. Mastering Virtual Selling. Yeah. A lot of lot of good stuff that you can do. You have to understand how to use a virtual whiteboard today. Um, you have to stop under uh, asking and understand when you share something. Oh, can you see my screen? <laughs> yeah, come on. Uh, yeah, I can see your screen. Um, you know, how do I adjust the area of my screen that I'm showing on Zoom? It's something I actually learned recently is you can share just a portion of your screen through the advanced setting and have that set up in the side and have some other things mm-hmm. shared and share multiple documents at once and you have to learn the technology, right? But the, the the counterintuitively, the killer to virtual selling has nothing to do with the virtual technology. I think virtual selling has exposed the lack of foundational sales skills that's rampant. Yeah, I agree. Running running an effective meeting, setting objectives that matter to your buyer and you, right? Thinking about exit criteria, mm-hmm. getting their engagement in that, running the meeting effectively to get through the things you need to, leaving time at the end to do a summary. What did we discuss? What decisions were made? What are the open issues? What's our next step? Who's assigned what? And ham, bam, have a meeting, book a meeting. When are we getting back together to further the conversation? You have to be able to run a meeting effectively, whether whether you're I'm sitting writing, in a boardroom, ham bam. By the way, ham bam. Have a meeting, book a meeting. <laughs> ham, um, <bam>. Okay, <laughs> that's from oh, a, that's from a mentor from. He's <laughs> probably 1991, and it stuck with me. Um, so yeah, so you've you've got to be able to do those things, whether you're in a boardroom or whether you're in a Zoom room. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter Absolutely. where where you are if you can't run an effective meeting. I think the virtual environments expose it even more because if you're not calling out people by name on the list and asking a question, you know, uh, if if you're not forecasting saying, you know, Andy in a minute, I'm going to ask you more about that, but first, and now, right? You, mm-hmm. You're sitting up straighter because you know you're going to talk about that in a minute. Right. right. But I'm giving you a little time to kind of tee that up. If you know, you there are things you can do in a virtual meeting or any meeting to engage people more effectively. Those are things that we need to get salespeople doing, regardless of the channel. Digital, right. Zoom, Teams. These are just channels. Right. It's it's it's, it's not or in, selling. In person. Yeah. It's, it's in person a channel. Right. Right. These are these are not selling. Selling or the communication skills and the business mastery skills and the mindsets and things that you bring to the table. That's what really matters. If you have that, 
you can and, and you and you're not incorrigible. You can learn a tech tool. You just have to make a commitment that you know I'm really going to learn this and I'm going to practice using this digital whiteboard on my own to know how it works and so I can use it effectively in a meeting and impress people or take better notes or you mm-hmm. know oh I'm going to be able to chat somebody and I'm going to make sure I do that one privately so it's not exposed to everybody. Oops, I met you know. I just chat a whole meeting. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you can you can learn. You can learn that stuff, and I think that's people just need to make the commitment to do it, to want to excel in that format. But then the bigger thing for me are all the other selling skills and human interaction communication skills. You know, those transfer from platform to platform to platform. Right. And so let's dive into those for just a second. Is is so as learning those. Is that now part of sales training? I would think so. I would think that it'd be part of uh, onboarding to either assess that people can do it or teach them how to do it more effectively. Uh, if you've got a current sales team, you'd want to, again, figure out. I'm a big fan of competency gap analysis, right? If mm-hmm. if you can assess the current state in your sales organization, and even self-assessment's powerful when people know it's sure. not going to be used against them. So right. if you can create a competency assessment, have people assess themselves, then have their managers assess them, you can compare those two. There's going to be some alignment. There are going to be some conceptual gaps. That starts a great conversation. But then if you can map your training that's available to the competencies, now you can create an ongoing personalized learning plan mm-hmm. to help individuals close their competency gap. So right. after you roll out a methodology and you have a central methodology that you use, the best way to keep that alive and get people to mastery is doing these competency assessments and then helping people close their individual gaps. And when managers can support that by coaching and making people that sure that they get through their their plans and can right. demonstrate the skills at the end, suddenly you are in this continuous improvement loop about how do we get better and better every single year. Right. Not well, rocket I, science, right? No. No. I mean, I your 12th building block, sales manager enablement, I mean, we spent an hour just on that because I, <laughs> I think that that's sort of the weak link in the chain right now is is yeah. we don't invest sufficiently in enabling management at any level in sales. It's almost funny that that's the same size block as everything else, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But behind that right, is an entire sales management system. And one of the systems that I, I talk about in the book, and that system starts with How do you remove the barriers and get out of what I call the sales prevention business? Mm -hmm. How do you remove the barriers to frontline sales manager engagement with their teams? Because, man, we throw so much stuff at these frontline sales managers that aren't the things that they should be doing, like assessing their team's performance, doing gap analysis. Do they need training or coaching? Where do they need my help? And what things should I focus on first? Because if I close that gap, it's going to raise their performance more than probably any other. And then what do we do after that? And then how do I observe them, coach them, provide feedback, field train, whatever it is that they need to get to their next level of performance? How is it that we have an entire force of field sales managers and they're not doing that stuff as their priority job? I don't get it. Well, I don't either. But I think part of it, though, is that we, (laughs) because we don't teach them and educate them as to how crucial these things are right i mean it's it's and we don't give them the skill set to go along with it and so it's yeah if we're not training you know people how to coach just do something as elemental as that you know how often do frontline managers get effective training on how to become a productive sales coach i mean not 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 enough right so we we, we have this expectation we talk about them doing coaching go coach go coach but we don't invest in them. I, I, you know, I sort of, you know, you, <laughs> use this just to illustrate a point. I said, you know, what would happen if we, uh, you know, the $15 billion a year or so that's supposedly spent on sales training every year in the U.S., of which we presume, what, 90, 95% of it's spent on training frontline sellers and maybe 5% on management. What if we flip that fraction? 
<laughs> what if we invested the bulk of that money in, in enabling managers? What would happen? One of the jokes I tell in webinars sometimes, and it's a, it's a little hyperbole, but not far off. I say, you know, if I only had a dollar to spend on sales training, I'd spend 75 cents on the frontline sales managers mm -hmm. because they are the lever for change in exactly. the organization. Exactly. They're the, they're the force multiplier who can take your sales force up, up, you know, up, up a notch. If they truly understand, first of all, the process, the methodology, the buyer acumen, you know, what's required to go to market effectively. And then they can identify to what degree are each of their sellers doing it and what can they do. And so one of the simplest things I, I see uh, that we teach, Andy, is what's the difference between training and coaching? Well, training mm -hmm. is what you do when someone doesn't know what, why, or how to do something. If they know what, why, and how, but just need to get better at it, then you want to start to coach them. And mm -hmm. coaching is interactive. It's engaging. It's led by questions. It's facilitation. Yep. Sure, you're sometimes providing feedback. Sure, you're, you're sometimes adding your perspective. But you're pulling it out of them and helping them develop. If they don't know any of that stuff, then they need to be trained, trained. first. Right. <laughs> teach them what, why, and how. And that simple thing that we like, teach in sales coaching excellence, sometimes I've had managers go, wow. I wish somebody had said that to me 20 years ago because they just keep doing the same thing over and over, like, mm -hmm. you know, keep training them or keep giving them feedback. I remember joining one organization whose concept of performance management was if the rep missed, they were all distributed across the country. If the rep missed their goal for that month, they got a FedEx letter that said, you missed your goal for this month. Next month, the expectation is this. If you don't achieve that, you'll be written up. Right. That was that was performance management yes. when I started. Now we changed all that. Very oh my lame. God! Can you imagine working in that system as a rep? I think I did at one point. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Early on. So, all right, Mike. We've run out of time, but thank you. It's been so much fun. Uh, if people want to learn more about your book, where can they do that? Uh, Amazon.com. Building blocks of sales enablement. They can uh, find me on. LinkedIn pretty easily, Mike Kunkel, K-U-N-K-L-E. Massive um, following. Yeah, re reach out. Uh, anybody who's listening to, to Andy is a friend of mine. Uh, reach out, get connected. I'm on Twitter at Mike underscore Kunkel. Publish a lot of, uh, of great content there. And Andy, I know you've got a new book coming out and I, I am do. really, I have really pumped to read that. <laughs> oh, I've loved you. all of your work. So um, I'm pretty excited we're, about that too. Well, we're, I think you'll, hopefully you'll like it. It's, I'm very excited about it. It's about uh, in part putting a stake in the ground and saying that these, you know, obsolete salesy behaviors that we've been inflicting on salespeople and our customers for so long, it's time to change. And, Amen, uh, brother. Yeah. So anyway, all right, Mike, a pleasure, and uh, we'll look forward to talking again soon. All right. Thanks, Andy. Really appreciate it. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we're so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Mike Kunkel, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or every listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.